Ezra chapter number six, though, we'll, we'll, finish, uh, we'll finish this tonight. I do have plans at some point to continue uh, this series, and I'm praying about when the Lord would have us to do that because, as you can see, as you flip through the remainder of the book, there's still several chapters left that we have not had an opportunity to get to. And, uh, and yet, I feel like God brings us here tonight, and this is a pretty good stopping point, as good of a place as any uh, in this particular book, if we're not going to be able to finish it at this point in time, uh, that we can kind of land here, and uh, I think that's a good thing. And so, I want you, if you would, to look with me in Ezra chapter number 6, and let's just look at verses 14 and 15 as sort of the uh, launch point. And uh, we're going to spend really the, uh, the rest of the uh, evening together throughout this chapter and really trying to figure out as much as we can about what's taking place here. But look in Ezra chapter 6, verse number 14. Well, the Bible says, And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they builded and finished it. Finished what? Well, finished the temple, what they had started on. And they finished it, the Bible says, according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. The title of the message tonight, or I think maybe the primary emphasis of Ezra chapter number six, is found in really verses 14 and 15, where we find the word more than once, and the word is this, finished, (laughs) finished. Um, I I think that this is a good landing point for us, because what has this book been about? Primarily, it has been uh, about, uh, on a surface level, it's been about the rebuilding of the temple, and of course we understand that it's much deeper than that, that this book is really about revival, uh, God's reviving work in the hearts and lives of his people. But it's centered around this project of rebuilding the temple that had been ruined uh, at the outset of the Babylonian captivity, and uh, really the ruins had just kind of sat there uh, for for 70 years when they returned. And of course, you know that they rebuilt the foundation, but then the adversaries rose up, and then there was another 10-year period in which the work on the Temple Mount ceased, and we read of that in Ezra chapter number four, and then, of course, Haggai and Zechariah burst on the scene with a word from the Lord, and God's people are stirred up, and they begin to resume the work, and now we come to chapter number six, and the work is finished. Now, the adversaries of the Jews who, um, the Jews who were rebuilding the temple had, had written in uh, the previous chapter, chapter number five, they had written a letter uh, to a man by the name of Darius. Darius was the king of the Persian Empire at that point in time, and the letter was written so that he could know what was going on. Of course, we understand that this is a different day and age than the day and age in which we're living in. And, uh, you know, separation of many miles would be very possible for here's this king of Persia. And, of course, we know that Judah and Jerusalem are still just a province. I mean, that's basically what it is at this point in time. It is not its own nation. It is a province of the Persian Empire. And, uh, and so it was very, very possible that Darius had no clue what was happening there in Jerusalem and in Judah. And so these, these people took it upon themselves 
because they were adversaries. They did not like the fact that the work was going forward. They took it upon themselves to write this letter to Darius to let him know, hey, just so you know, the Jews are rebuilding the temple, and I'm not so sure that you really want them to be doing this. And of course, that letter and its contents are found in the previous chapter, beginning in verse number seven, all the way down through verse number 17, you can read the letter that they wrote to Darius, letting him know what was happening, what, what they felt about it, and, uh, and, and encouraging him what he should do about it. Now, Artaxerxes, the king, had shut the work down uh, 10 years prior. We read of that in Ezra 4, in verse number 21. Your Bible's open to chapter 6. Look in verse number 21 of Ezra 4. Here is, here's Artaxerxes' uh, letter or reply back after the initial adversaries had written a letter to him, letting him know, hey, this work is going on. Verse number 21, he says, Give ye now commandment to cease, excuse me, to cause these men to cease and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. So you have to understand there's three kings that are identified in this, in this book. There's Cyrus in the very beginning of the book, and then there's a man by the name of Artaxerxes, who comes into power, and then after him is a man by the name of Cyrus. And so you have three kings in which there is some involvement with the Jews and what they're doing here uh, in, this, in this temple. And so um, these adversaries assumed, they assumed that they were going to get a similar response out of Darius. And so they wrote the letter, and they thought, well, this, this worked the last time. We wrote a letter to the previous king, and he shut the work down. Now the work's going again, and, and so all we have to do is just write a letter uh, to this king, and he's going to reply with, hey, cause the work to cease. Shut it down. Uh, don't let this go on any longer. And so they, they eagerly are awaiting um, King Darius's cease and desist reply that they are sure is coming. I mean, they're just certain of it. I mean, this is a slam dunk. This is a home run. Um, we just know that he is going to do exactly what the previous king had done. But imagine, imagine their shock and their dismay when Darius wrote back to them what is recorded for us in this particular chapter. Um, we're going to get to it in a moment, but it was not at all what they anticipated that it was going to be. As we read this text, I, I just, I don't know about you, but I'm reminded once again that God miraculously intervened in this particular project. I mean, there's just, there's just something that God is doing here. It is unmistakable, and no matter what adversaries rise up, and no matter what is going on in the world at this point in time, God is going to see to it that this project is completed. And I think we can learn something from that. And we'll try to, try to draw some, some conclusions here towards the end of our time together. So this story reminds us that if a work is of God and it is of his will, listen, then it cannot be stopped. It cannot be prevented. It cannot be stopped no matter how great or how relentless the adversaries may be. Now the sixth chapter of Ezra clearly reveals God is, is resisting the very adversaries who are trying to resist his people and his work. And we've, we've talked about this. There are always adversaries to God's work. But here's what I want to say. If it is truly God's work, it cannot be overthrown. I, um, I think that reminds us of a New Testament story. And I want to spend a minute or two in this story tonight. So I want you to hold your place in Ezra 6. And I want you to go with me to Acts chapter number 5, if you would. And some of you, perhaps, you know what takes place in this particular uh, text, but I, I, I feel like what is conveyed here is really 
um, the similar thought to what is found in Ezra chapter number six. And in Acts chapter number five, we, we learn of a man by the name of Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel um, is, a, is a religious leader, and Gamaliel in Acts chapter number five, he is sort of the, the voice of reason, which is interesting because I don't know I don't know how much he would normally be a voice of reason, but he definitely rises up in this particular text, and he sort of has to speak to a frenzied mob um, uh, in reminding them that when it comes to the preaching of the gospel, um, as it relates to Peter and John in Acts chapter number five, that there really are, can only be two outcomes to this particular, to this particular thing. And uh, look with me in, in Acts chapter number five. Look what he says. This is his premise. This is, this, this is really the, the totality of spiritual warfare. Look what it says there in Acts five, verse number 38. Gamaliel is speaking. He says, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men. He, he's saying, leave them alone. Now we're gonna see that Darius says the exact same thing. He says, refrain from these men, verse number 38, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. That word naught is just another word for nothing. All right, verse 39. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply uh, ye be found even to fight against God. That word happily there means to eagerly. Um, so so he, here's, here's what he's saying. He, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, if, if God is in it, you can't stop it. You just can't. I mean, you can try anything you want to, but at the end of the day, God's not losing. And they say this, if God's not in it, well, then it's gonna end anyways. Because every work of man is a temporary work, and the work of God is an eternal and a powerful work. And that's what, that's what Gamaliel is recognizing here. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. Peter and John had been arrested, and they had been beaten, and, and, yet, and yet the very next day, according to Acts 5, they're right back in the temple preaching the same gospel. I mean, it, it didn't slow them down, not one, not one single bit. Um, so the question is this, that they're wrestling is, what are we going to do with these guys? What are we going to do with them? Um, you know, we, we tried the traditional measures, and the traditional measures have not worked. You know, normally it would, it would be that you imprison somebody and you beat them and, and, and they're, they're probably going to keep quiet for a while, but not these guys. These guys are bound and determined. So what are we going to do with these guys? And that's the discussion that they're, they're having in which Gamaliel speaks into the situation. So his wise words remind them, he, he says, let's think about some other movements throughout history. And, and let's think about the fact that ultimately these movements that we're thinking about, we got all riled up about these things and got all stressed about these things, but eventually they, they died as, as all human movements do. He reminds us of in, in Acts 5 and verse number 35, he says, uh, ye men of Israel, he says, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. So he's saying, you better be careful. You better be careful. Now I know, I, you know that they're thinking, well, we gotta kill these guys. Because it's obvious that a, that a normal beating is not going to help. So these guys got to die, or we got to ship them off somewhere so that they're not around anymore. And he's saying, you better be careful what you do with these men, and here's why. He said, for before these days rose up a man by the name of Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves. And so here's this man. He's reminding them of this man by the name of Thutis. We know nothing really about him. But Thutis, at a certain point in time, he, 
he, he stands up and he says, listen, I'm the man here and I'm going to start a movement. And he, and he rallies about 400 to his cause. And 400s, you know, it's more than 40. And so uh, it maybe causes a little bit of stress to the Jewish leadership at this point in time. What are we going to do with this guy? What's going to happen to this guy? And, and, and they, say, they say this, that he says he was slain. Look, look, a, little bit, look a little bit later. He says, uh, and, and, and uh, it says about 400 joined themselves. Who was slain? So they killed this guy. They killed Thutis. Now notice what happens to Thutis' disciples, his, his uh, team of people. He says, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught or brought to nothing. Then he, then he goes on in verse number 37. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, he died, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now, I want you to think about what is really being said here. Who is, who is Gamaliel referencing here when he's talking about Thutis and he's talking about Judas? He is not talking about Peter and John. He's not talking about Peter and John at all. He's talking about Jesus. Because everyone, everyone knew that Jesus had been slain. Jesus had been crucified. And so Gamaliel is saying, guys, let's, let's take the longer approach here. It wasn't that long ago that Jesus was crucified. Now, whether Gamaliel believed in the resurrection or not, we don't know. There obviously were a lot of rumors going around as to what happened to Jesus. Obviously, Peter and John are preaching that Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's ascended back to heaven. But, but here's what we know. We know that Jesus' physical presence, his physical man- manifestation here on this earth, has been taken away. Jesus is no longer physically here in this form. And so, and so Gamaliel is sort of going off of this idea of, well, Thutis was no longer around, and Judas of Galilee was no longer around, and when those guys were gone, what happened to their movements? Well, they came to naught. Their, their followers, their disciples, eventually got tired of, you know, the fact that, well, you know, our leader was killed, and, and he's not coming back, and you know, we can go on like this if we want to, but, you know, if it wasn't good enough for him, it's probably not going to be good enough for us. And so why don't we just, you know, move, on, move along from this and find some other cause to give ourselves to? And Gamaliel's point, Gamaliel's point here is this. Listen, if Jesus is just another man, then soon enough his followers will tire of this life and they're going to move on to something else. And so he's saying, don't worry about it. Let them preach all they want to. Give him an audience in the temple. Have at it. Because if Jesus is just another man, then it's not going to be long before everybody sees through this facade that it's not real, that this Savior is not a living Savior, therefore he's powerless, because what good is a dead Savior? He's no good to anybody. And so Gamaliel's saying, don't worry about it. But on the flip side, he says this, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is really who he claims to be, if he really is the Son of God, Gamaliel's saying, guys, I hate to break it to you, but this movement cannot be stopped. Because we're talking about the Son of God here. We're talking about the Messiah here. So, so we're, we're trying to make this differentiation here, and we're thinking back to the period of Ezra. And, and here's the question. If God is behind the rebuilding of this temple and the return of the people and the rebuilding of the city, well, then guess what, adversaries? You, you're you're going to lose. You don't stand a chance. You can write all the letters you want to in the world. I mean, you can do a petition drive, and you can, you can form an army if you want to, and you can try to burn that temple down if you want to, but if God is in the thing, it cannot be stopped. Amen. On the other side, 
guys, if God's not in it, well, then you're probably going to win at some point. You're probably going to emerge victorious. So, so that's really what's happening here in Ezra chapter number six. So the adversaries, they are set to learn this lesson in a very painful way in this particular chapter. And here's the lesson they're going to learn. They're going to learn that God is all over this project. And because God is all over this project, there's nothing that's going to keep it from being finished. And that's really what this chapter is all about. And really what this book is all about. Now, I want us to consider the events of the chapter. I want us to walk through it. And then I want to share with you at the end three, three great lessons or three great truths that I believe are, 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 are born out of this particular text and this particular idea of what is happening here in Ezra chapter number six. So let's, let's, look, at, let's look at the events of this chapter and just kind of walk our way through it and then we'll give these thoughts at the end. Number one, we discover the early part of the chapter, verses one to five, is Darius receives this letter and he searches to see if Cyrus truly had commissioned the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So that's the first five verses is what we're finding. So, so the letter is sent. And the Jews have said, here's why we're rebuilding this, because Cyrus told us to do it. And he even sent funding and money, and he even gave us back the sacred vessels. Well, Cyrus was a long time ago, and Darius doesn't know a whole lot about Cyrus and what Cyrus has done. And so they're assuming, you know, Darius is not on board with this. And so they send the letter, and they said, you need to check the king's record. You need to check the king's logbook, you know, to see whether these things are so. So Darius receives the letter, and he reads it, and he's urged by these letter writers, hey, check the record and see if what these Jews are telling you is the truth. And so that's exactly what he does. In Ezra chapter number six, Darius checks the record. And notice, if you'll look with me, in verse uh, number one, Darius the king made a decree and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid uh, up in Babylon. And there was found at Ekmetha in the palace that is in the province of the Medes a roll. And therein was a record thus written. And there's the record, verse three. In the first year of Cyrus, the king, the same Cyrus, the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, that the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundation thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof, three score cubits, and the breadth thereof, three scored cubits with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber. I mean, it goes on and on here. I mean, not only does Cyrus say to do this, but he also includes the dimensions of this thing. I mean, all of this is included in the record book that Cyrus, or excuse me, that Darius had made, excuse me, Cyrus had made when he was king. Um, I, 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 I just want to remind you that this discovery by Darius, as he looks in the records, here's what it reveals. It reveals this, that God always preserves his word. God preserves his word. Now here's why it reveals that. You see, while, while Cyrus had made the proclamation, it came about as a result of what? It came about as a result of the fact that God had inspired his prophets several hundred years before to write that this was going to happen. And, uh, and so in the time in which Cyrus, who's even named in Isaiah, He's named, he's give, his very name is given, even though he's 150 years away from being born, Isaiah writes his name out. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And, um, and so God stirs up Cyrus and, uh, about this rebuilding, and Cyrus does what God has stirred him up about, and he keeps a record of it, that this is what I'm 
commissioning the Jews to do. I want them to go back. I want them to rebuild the temple. The temple's going to be this high. And I mean, he's, you know, he's going off of, the, uh, off of the dimensions that are recorded for us in Scripture. And, and he even goes so far as to say, hey, I want them also to have uh, access to the vessels that had been taken uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And so here we are. We're years removed from all of these things, and yet we find the record of God stirring in the heart of Cyrus. That record still remains. Why? Because God always preserves his word. He always preserves his word. Um, so, so we see here that that's the first five verses. In verses six to 10, I, I love this portion. This is probably my favorite portion of the whole chapter. In verses six to 10, Darius ordered the authors of this letter to leave the work alone. I love it. I, I, I love it. It's when, the, it's when the bully gets put in his place, you know? Uh, it's when somebody finally stands up to the bully and, you know, just knocks him in the mouth and he finally quits talking and he quits, you know, mouthing off and, and, and it's, it's like the good guys all breathe a sigh of relief. You know, this is a, this is a good thing. That's what happens in verses six to 10. Look, look, look at these verses, verses six. Now, therefore, he's writing to these men, Tatnai, governor beyond the river, Shethar Bosnai and your companions. Now you got names like that. I can't imagine you even want to be a bully, but nevertheless. He says, uh, he says, and your companions, the Epharsachites, uh, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. You know what he's saying? He's saying, get away from them. I like it. I like it. And, and, and the king can say that because he's the king. I mean, this is, this is the guy in charge. He says, he, now, now be far from thence is a fancy way of saying, get out of there. That's what, that's what he's saying. I mean, that's in the, you know, the 2022 vernacular. He's saying, get away from those guys. Now look at verse number seven. Let the work of this house of God alone. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, get away from them. Leave them alone. That's what he's saying. Uh, this is the response of Darius, the king, to this letter that these bullies have written to him that is recorded for us in chapter number five. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Now, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, I don't know what does. I mean, I just love to see it. I love to see the adversaries of God lose. <laughs> I love it when the people of God wins, uh, win because, because that means God is winning, right? Uh, because that's how God works in this world. He works through, uh, through people, through his people. So not only does Darius take the time to look into this matter, but he also orders those who had written him, he says that you need to stand back from this work being done and you need to leave these builders alone. Quit bothering them. Let them do what God has called them to do and what God has given them to do. Now, now Darius's order features the following instructions. Number one, he says, get away from them. We find that in verse number six. Number two, he says, leave them alone. So get, get away from the Temple Mount. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. You know, as a, uh, as a parent, sometimes you got a referee with your kids, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes your kids are getting at each other. And sometimes the solution is, is this. Get away from each other. Leave each other alone. The two of you go to completely separate rooms. I don't want to see the two of you in the same room for at least an hour. You need a break from each other, right? And sometimes as parents, you know, I, I feel like Darius is sort of like this, this, this dad who's trying to settle this dispute with these knuckleheads, and he's just going, leave them alone. 
Get away from them. Let them do what they have been commissioned and called to do. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. Notice, not only tell them to get away from these builders and leave them alone, but then, then he does this. He, number three, he continues funding this project when probably the funding had dried up. But because, because he's now aware that Cyrus had commissioned this, you know what he says? Look what he says in verse, uh, verse number eight, nine, and 10. He, it says this, Moreover, I make a decree what ye shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, forthwith expenses be given unto these men that they be not hindered. Isn't that hilarious? Now, these guys are trying to shut the work down, and not only do they not shut the work down, but they actually, they actually propel it forward at a much faster rate than it would have been before. Because you know, you know that this decree comes because Darius looks around and says, well, you know, Cyrus commanded that money be given, tax money be given from this side of the river to the work that's being done on that side of the river, and we haven't done that in a long time, so let's just resume that. We're going to start sending them some funding to make sure that this project gets finished. Now, does God, does God have a sense of humor or what? I mean, honestly, this would be the response. This would be the reply. You know, you know that this guy... Tatnai and Shethar Bosnai were not expecting this kind of a reply. This was not what they had in mind, but it is what they, what they got. The letter they sent to shut the work down actually propels the work forward. And I'm just reminded of the, the, the fact that the thing that was meant to destroy them, the letter that was meant to destroy the Jews and the work that was being done actually ends up, that very thing ends up aiding and assisting them. And I'm reminded of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the Bible says this, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder. You know, you know, what, you know what they're saying in this text? They're saying, let's destroy this temple. Let's make sure that this work doesn't go forward. Let's cast away their cords from us. Notice God's response, verse number four. He that sitteth in the heavens shall be stressed about it, be anxious about it, really worry about it, rub his hands together, trying to figure out what he's gonna do. No, no. he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Now, I gotta tell you, there is nothing more infuriating in all the world than, um, than your opponent laughing at you. I mean, that is like another level of humiliation altogether. When we were younger, um, I, I'm a middle child. I, I have an older brother and I have a younger brother. And primarily, I, uh, I left my older brother alone because I was smart, you know. I mean, he's two years older than me. He's bigger than me, stronger than me. And, uh, but my, my younger brother wasn't as smart as I was, you know. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But um, he, uh, he sometimes would get, he'd, get, he'd get after me about things, you know. We'd get into it. But because he was, and he, and he was always lot smaller than I was, even though there was only two years in between us. And so, and so there were times in which he would get fired up. I mean, really fired up. And he'd come into the room and I mean, his face, I mean, at that time he had a pretty legendary temper, you know, and his face would be bright red and he'd be, you know, he'd snarling at me, you know, and, and, and then he'd, he'd start swinging his fists at me. And because he was smaller, it was not a threat. It was not a threat at all. In fact, in fact, I have to tell you, there were times in which he's throwing, you know, trying to throw haymakers at me and I'm just laughing. I mean, I'm just sitting there, and that made him even more furious. And the fist, you know, that, now they're getting even you know, more heated. He's more angry than he even was before. And I just have to tell you that God's response here is that. 
He laughs. You're not a threat to me. I'm not afraid of you. You think you can stop what, I'm, what I've determined I'm going to do here in this, in this earth? You've got another thing coming. You, you, you'll, never, you'll never match me in power and in strength. And if I determine it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And that's exactly what's taking place here in this text. Now, it doesn't stop there, though. This letter from Darius, notice that the next thing, Darius threatens those who might try to ignore or change his decree with death. Look at verses 11 and 12, would you? Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. And I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word. So not only does he say, leave them alone, get away from them, and we're going to start funding this project again, but he takes it a step further. Whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and people that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. So so Darius threatens those who might try to ignore or alter his decree that is written in this letter. He threatens them with death. See, I think Darius was, was, was a pretty smart guy. And I think he could see through the authors of this letter. Because if you read it in verses 7 to 17, they write it sort of like in this innocent manner. Sort, sort of like, you know, the tattletale. You know, it's like, you know, I, I thought you might want to know that this was happening while you were gone. You know, not, not that you would want to do anything. You know what they want? They want you to throw the book at them. You know, uh, they, they want you to, to be filled with fury and rage, but they're presenting it in an innocent way because, you know, they don't, want, they don't want you to think that you're trying to, well, that's, that's sort of how these guys wrote the letter. King Darius, we thought you might want to know that this is happening. I, you, you check the record and see, they say that Cyrus gave them this permission, but I, I just can't imagine that Cyrus would do something like this. So just, you check the record and you just determine how you want to, and, and Darius reads right through these, these guys. And he knows exactly what's going on. And he knows, he knows, listen, I'm going to send this decree back. And these guys, I can tell these guys hate what's going on there. And, and, and these guys might try to ignore what I've written, or they might try to alter what I've written, or they might try to be deceitful about it. And so Darius says this. He says, so hey, listen, if you guys try any funny business, here's what I'm decreeing. I'm decreeing that they take wood from your house, destroy your house, let it become a dunghill, and they build a gallows to hang your sorry necks from it if you decide that you're going to violate what I have decreed here. That's, that's Darius's reply. I mean, he's pretty, pretty blunt, isn't he? He's pretty clear about what he wants to be done here. Notice the next thing found in verse number 13 after receiving the letter. <laughs> oh, I love this part. The, the receivers of the letter, the adversaries, they now hurry to help the Jews for fear of their lives. Look at verse number 13. Somebody needs to do a, a movie about this, I think. Verse number 13. Then Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, Shethar Bosnai and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily or with haste, or diligently, or as fast as they possibly could, because their necks were on the line. Now, isn't it amazing? Um, Isn't it amazing that the same people that that would have killed these guys if they could have, and they would have destroyed this temple, now all of a sudden, these tough guys, these really, you know, these, these men... Now, all of a sudden, they get a letter from the king, and, I mean, they, uh, they go full force into doing the job that they were trying to resist in the first place. And God's in the middle of all of this thing. The final 
thing that I want you to, to see in this particular response from Darius, and then we'll, get, we'll gather the three truths and we'll be done, is this. With the adversaries now helping them and funds from the Persians coming in again, the temple project is completed in about four years' time. Because they write the letter uh, to, to, to Darius in the second year, uh, it's in the second year that the project gets going again, and it's in the sixth year that the project is completed, according to verse number 14. And if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, maybe uh, mark those, those two phrases, they builded and finished it. There's something about a finished project, isn't there? When you start off on something and you see it through, no matter how long it takes you to do it, to complete it, you can rest easy that night knowing, I put the time in, I fixed whatever needs to be fixed, I built whatever needs to be built, and I can rest easy tonight. Ezra, Ezra writes that all of this was done according to the commandment of the God of Israel. And then, and then he writes this, and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now here's what I want you to know. God uses men to accomplish his work. We understand that. And three of these men are listed here. But, but ultimately, ultimately, listen, all of this was done because of the commandment of God. And this was God's work. This was God's job. And because it was God's project, then, then it, was, it was determined. It was destined to be completed so long as his people would be faithful now, what lessons does this passage and story reveal for us today? In other words, is there something here that can help us in our own personal lives or in our church? And I believe there are. I believe there's three conclusions that I want to draw from this story and from this text. I'm going to give them to you tonight and we'll be done. Number one, first conclusion is this. If God has decreed it, we should be doing it. I think that's the first lesson that we learn from this story. If God has told us to do it, then we ought to be doing it, whatever it might be. In their case, it was rebuilding a temple, and it was returning out of captivity back to the promised land and re-inhabiting Jerusalem again. That's what God had told them to do, and, and, and they were faithful. There were some bumps in the road, and there was, a, again, that 10-year delay in which you know, they had been shut down because of the decree that Artaxerxes had made, uh, but, but ultimately, the, 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 the work got going, and it, and it eventually was finished. Why? Because if God has decreed it, God's people should be doing it. Now, understand that God was the driving force behind all of this. Though Cyrus decreed it in a physical sense, and though the people of God had to respond to Cyrus's decree to go back, and they had to begin swinging the hammers and cutting down the wood and doing the work that was necessary, understand that though God used the human beings in this, God was the driving force behind it all. This work would never have started, would never have been possible without God stirring in the heart of Cyrus and his decree that his people return and rebuild the temple. In other words, it was God's will. That I, want, I want you to make note of that. It was God's will for this project, not just to get started, but also to be finished. With God decreeing it, with God saying this is the way it should be, then the people's only responsibility was to do what? Was just to do it. Was just to obey it. Now, you know, we talked about this at length, the Jews drifted away for 10 years in doing what he had decreed, and they were judged for it, weren't they? See, so where does it say they were judged for it? Haggai 1 and verse number 6. The prophet Haggai said, you say it's not time for this work to begin, but, but look what he says. He says, you have sown much, and you bring in little. 
He says, ye have not enough. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Why? Why is all that happening? Because God had decreed something that his people were not doing. And therefore, listen, when God decrees it, and when, when you decree something in your home, mom and dad, and your children don't do it, what happens? Bad things happen, right? Bad things. Uh, could be grounding, could be corporal punishment, could be yelling and screaming and shouting. Um, I hope it's not throwing things, but bad things happen in your home when you decree things and your children ignore what you've decreed. Can I say, can I say that in our relationship with God, bad things happen when he decrees things and we don't do them. And God, God gives the bad things here in Haggai 1.6. He says, you, 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 you make money, but you put it into a bag with holes. You're eating all the time, but you're never filled. You're drinking, but you're never satisfied. He says, you, you have plenty of clothes on and blankets to cover yourself, but you're never warm. Why do you suppose that is? Because you've not been obedient to me. So, so, so if God has decreed it, we should be doing it. So here's the question. What has God decreed that we be doing today? I, I think that's maybe the next question, the next logical question we, we should come to. Well, God has decreed that we as Christians, that we should be evangelizing, right? So who are you telling about Jesus? Who are you giving the gospel to? If God's decreed it, you ought to be doing it. I ought to be doing it. And if we're not, well, then we're not being obedient. And if we're not being obedient, what happens when we're not being obedient? I mean, you can make the connection, right? Bad things happen in our lives. So evangelism. You say, well, I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. Well, you better get back to doing it. Because the Jews used to be building the temple. They took a 10-year break, and look what happened. So if God has decreed it, we should be doing it. Um, evangelism. How about discipleship? Who, who are you mentoring? Is there, a young, is there a younger Christian in this church or in your workplace or in your life that you're showing them how to live and teaching them what does the Bible say? Uh, discipleship. How about giving? That's a big one. God's decreed that we be giving. Are we doing it? I mean, that's a yes or no answer, you know? Are we, are, we, are we satisfying God's demands in this area? And God, has, God has decreed that we live holy, right, and sanctified as his people. We don't have time to delve into all the scriptures, but you know they're there. You know the Bible is very clear that his people, that they're to be a peculiar people and that they're to be sanctified. They're to be set apart from the world. Are you doing it? God's decreed that we start churches. God's decreed that we let our light shine. The list could go on and on and on. So here's the question. Which of these are you or are you not doing? Which of these are we not doing as a church? The Jews gave excuses as to why the time wasn't right to resume the work, but their, their excuses did not satisfy God. And God says, you can give all the excuses you want, but you're going to be under my judgment until you start doing what I've commanded and commissioned you to do. Are we guilty of doing the same thing? Notice, secondly, here's what I want you to understand, and we've talked about this a little bit, so we won't spend a lot of time here tonight, but if God has decreed it, we should be doing number two. If God has decreed it, nothing can stop it. So if God has decreed it, we ought to be doing it, and here's why you ought to be doing it, because nothing can stop it. See, sometimes we don't do what God has decreed we do because we're afraid. Fear fills our hearts. Well, what will people say? Well, what if, you know, what if they don't? And can I just tell you, we all struggle with those feelings of inferiority, of feeling like we're outnumbered. Yesterday, we, we went door knocking. Yesterday afternoon, one o'clock, we pull up on the street. I'm 43 years old. I'm the pastor of this church. I have knocked thousands of doors in my life. But you know what? It never gets any easier. I get out of the van, and I go to that first door, and all right, we'll see how this goes. 
Hello, we're from the Cleveland Baptist Church. What are you doing here? You know, I interrupted my day. But you, can, can I just tell you something? Listen, God's told us to do it. So we just need to do it. I know, I know it's scary. It's intimidating. And you never know how people are going to take it and whether you're going to get any results. But it's not about results. It's about just doing what God has commanded us to do. It's about just being faithful because if God has decreed it, then nothing can stop it. I mean, these adversaries, they tried everything. But understand, they were unsuccessful. Darius replied, get away from them. Leave them alone while they do a great work for God. I've got plenty of scriptures here. We don't have time to get into them. Joshua 1.8. The Bible talks about, you know, this book of the law, not departing out of your mouth. And if you meditate upon it day and night, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. In other words, you get into this book and you let this book get into you and you're going to be successful and you're going to prosper in life. Nothing can stop that. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and the righteousnesses of me. Matthew 16, 18, and I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Romans 8, 37 to 39, don't have time to go there. 1 John 4, 4, here of God little children have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I'm just simply saying, we learn from this story, if God is in it, if God God has decreed it, there's not a thing in the world that can stop it. We just need to step out by faith and just do what we know God is calling us to do, what we know God is leading us to do. And this has stirred my heart. I'll pray it stirs your heart as well. Finally, number three, we'll finish here tonight. The work of God is more focused on building faith than it ever is on building buildings. In other words, in other words, what's this all about anyways? Is this really all about a building? I mean, honestly, do you really think that this is what is really going on here? That God's so interested in this building being rebuilt? That's not what this is about, is it? Not on your life. This is, as we said in the beginning of this, this is not about a geographic location. This is not about a physical address that these people are residing in. No, no, no. This is about the work that God is doing in the hearts of his people Will you be obedient? Will you be faithful? Will you trust me and watch as I step in, as I intervene, and as I do unusual things in your life? You read verses 16 to 22, and for the first time in ages, there is hope restored in Jerusalem. There is promise of a bright future. There is joy. The Bible says that they kept this Passover and this dedication. They did these things with joy, according to verse number 16 and according to verse number 22. Well, what is this all about? Is this about, a, is this about an edifice? Is this about a building? No, this is about God's people living, living according to God's way once again. That's what it's all about. Listen, we don't build things for the sake of building things. We build things. Because it's in those places that we can effectively worship God and please him and do what God's called us to do. And that's, what, that's what we build buildings for. And that's what we do great, try to do great things by faith for is because by doing those things, God gets the honor and the praise and the glory. Every building that God's people build should be a place where the work of God can go forward. What please God, what please God more? You ask yourself this question. What pleased God more? The final drywall being hung. Now, I don't even know if they had drywall back in those days. Probably didn't. But let's just assume they did. Do you think, do you think that that pleased God? The final piece of drywall being hung, taped and mudded. And I think that's what they do with that stuff. I wouldn't know. 
Do you, do you suppose that maybe, maybe what pleased, pleased God was, was the final fixture that was secured into place? Maybe the last chandelier that was hung. Or maybe the last wall ornament that was placed there. Do you think that that's what God was really thrilled about? Do you think maybe it's the final layer of paint being applied? Or, or do you think that God was pleased with the fact that finally his people could gather together? and offer sacrifices, and sing praise, and the priests and Levites could serve in this place, and the Passover could be celebrated as it was designed to be celebrated. I think we all know the answer to that. It wasn't about the building. It was about what was gonna take place in that building. And it was about what was gonna take place in the hearts of God's people as they saw God do miraculous work after miraculous work after miraculous work. So understand this. Listen, the work of God, the work of God is not, it's not about things, it's not about your money. It's not, a, it's, honestly, it's not about Cleveland Baptist Church bringing more people into it and filling this place up. And we're seeing some encouraging things, but that's not what it's about. No, no, listen, the work of God, what God is interested in, he's working and he's interested in what's going on in your heart and in your life. What are you, what are you learning? What is he teaching you? How are you growing? What steps of faith are you taking? That is really what matters to God. That's what the work is all about. And if we lose sight of that, then we've lost sight of the whole thing. And now all of a sudden it's about numbers. It's about bigger buildings. It's about more parking spaces. It's about accumulating more, gathering more. When at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what it is about, what it's about, it's about proclaiming the truth of the gospel to more and more people so that souls can be saved and lives can be changed.